Today's guest served in the British Parachute Regiment, the Paras, as a sergeant major before spending 20 years in the elite SAS on the counterterrorism and special projects teams. Special Forces legend Des Powell is here, and I'll speak with him next. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. This book is called SAS Bravo 3-0, The Gripping True Story. And author and UK Special Forces veteran Des Powell joins us now. Des, welcome to the show. We're honored, sir. Rob, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, What's it like over there where you are? Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful sunny day. Morning, actually. Yeah, got you. Afternoon. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. It's uh, it's just after three o'clock in the afternoon here. And uh, yeah, we've been having some good weather. Um, in fact, we've just had a um, record hottest day on record. I think it was 41 degrees. I believe that's the hottest day that we've ever had on record. What did you do with that? Did you stay inside? <laughs> As you can appreciate, over here in UK, we're not used to that sort of weather. And yeah. so most people kept indoors, you know. Uh, um, me being um, used to hot weather, being out, uh, living a lot of years in the Middle East, I actually got out and did a bit of sunbathing. So uh, oh, so there we go, Rob. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we get into the book, which I mentioned offline is, and I don't say this often, that often is a, is a true page turner, and I love it. Um, but before we get into some of the questions on the book, I want to know a little bit about your military background and how you joined the SAS. Uh, yes, when I first joined uh, the British military, I joined the Parachute Regiment, um, and I served with the Paras for approximately eight and a half years. Um, the Paras have uh, a tough reputation. I think Paras around the world do. And I'm pointing that fact out is that it prepared me very well for when I went to the SES. In fact, both the Paras and Marines in the British Armed Forces are classed as spearhead troops. Uh, so they tend to have a more robust, a more um, tougher uh, type of training. Uh, I did eight and a half years in the Paras, really enjoyed it. Um, it's a tough lifestyle. But as I said, that got me up and running and ready for uh, the SES. Mm -hmm. And what I did, I, I volunteered. It's strictly a volunteer process. Uh, you feel right if I'm going to take my military career to the next level, the only other place you're going to go is to the SES. Um, they call it selection, a selection process. Uh, they do two a year. Uh, I volunteered. Uh, you have uh, two attempts at selection. I failed the first one. I got injured. Ooh. And uh, um, I came back and did the second one. And then I was in the SES then for a long time, almost 20 years. Wow. So the combined of being in the Paris and the combination of being in the SES, I did over approximately 28 years. Um, when I was in the SES, uh, you specialize in a, uh, a lot of stuff. And one of the things that I did specialize in was uh, high altitude free fall parachuting. And I was in air troop, which is within the SAS. Um, and that's, uh, um, they class that as an entry skill. That's entering into a volatile country uh, not seen. And that's parachuting at 25,000 feet, uh, approximately five miles up. Um, free fall is two minutes uh, with equipment on oxygen. And um, I specialized in that for many, many years. Really enjoyed it. And, um, and 
the regiments with the repetition that we have, we get involved in all conflicts around the world. And right. the conflicts that people know about is Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, down in Africa, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Latin America. So we get involved in a lot in the regiment. And then we have clandestine operations, which are the operations which are kind of secret and not talked about. Um, right. That's a broad brush of my uh, military career, if you like, 28 years. Amazing. And uh, a follow-up to that is what you say you uh, didn't make the cut the first time. What is the uh, the washout rate? It must be very high of people that don't make the cut um, for both attempts. Yes, it is. It's all, it, it's yeah, Rob. It's over ninety percent. Wow. And uh, um, so they do two selections a year, basically uh, winter, summer, and they is it's a small regiment anyhow, uh, Rob. And these no, it's over ninety percent. So there's not very many people get through. And it doesn't matter uh, how you fail. I failed in an injury or whether you get ill or, or whether they don't think you're good enough. It's a fail. You have to start it all over again. And you only have two attempts at it. So luckily, I passed it the second time. Yeah. And uh, But the, the guys that go up to the regiments always have long careers. They don't have short careers because uh, they invest in you in a big way. And uh, um, yes, so it's, uh, but I had a great time there, Rob. Really enjoyed it. Good, good. Now, your units, uh, getting to the book, your unit's work has been overshadowed by Bravo 2-0 and what happened to that unit. Um, people in America may not be familiar with it, but it was, uh, it was a tragedy that happened to that unit. And you were uh, inserted at almost the same time as Bravo 2-0. Could you tell us what your mission was and if you were able to accomplish it? Uh, yes, the mission, in fact, for all three uh, patrols, Bravo 1-0, Bravo 2-0, and Bravo 3-0, was to find and locate mobile Scud rockets, missiles, if you like. And these were being fired from the Iraqi desert, and they were being fired on neighboring countries, uh, mainly uh, Israel. And the leader at the time of Iraq, which was Saddam Hussein, was very clever. He was trying to entice uh, Israel to come into the war, which would have been a larger conflict. Uh, it would have destabilized the Middle East and it would have, have, there would have been a larger loss of life. So what they decided was our three patrols uh, working independently was to be flown uh, hundreds of miles behind enemy lines uh, and to observe uh, MSRs, uh, main uh, supply routes, and they were, we were hoping to observe these mobile Scud rockets moving up and down these highways, if you like. We was then uh, to take their coordinates, send them back to headquarters with an intention of bringing in airstrikes to eliminate these mobile Scud rockets. Um, answering your question about the success, um, going through our missions um, in the book, we talk about the problems that we had. But as far as uh, a successful mission, we were having problems along the way of uh, communicating through our signals back to headquarters uh, to bring in these airstrikes. So we wasn't sure where the messages were getting through. We only knew at the end of our operation, once we had a debrief, that we'd been quite successful. And in fact, they reckon they're over over. 80, 85% of the Scud missiles 
that we had, had sent through our signal reporting, if you like, on the MSRs had been eliminated. But we wasn't to know this until we got back. But as you know, in the story, there's, uh, uh, there's obviously a lot more that's uh, happened, like, you know. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, former CIA counterterrorist chief of operations, Rick Prado, will be here to talk about his book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. You cannot run operations through an, a political optic. Uh, operations should be led and devised and approved by the people that know what the hell they're doing. That doesn't mean you don't do it with White House approval, but you cannot allow a political you know, optic to change that. Bay of Pigs is a perfect example of that and many, many others. That's next time. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history. And my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Now back to the conversation. You faced challenges, and that was one of my questions, uh, of extreme cold, and you were told that it would be like a UK spring. And uh, it wasn't like that. And could you describe what happened to that? Because it was a real challenge dealing with the cold. Yes. You know, as we can appreciate, you can't control the weather. But there was a lot of things that that happened and that went wrong, as these things do in conflict. But one of the main ones that we were told out there is that the weather, yes, was going to be like a spring in UK. And it, it was actually the coldest weather that Iraq had ever experienced. In fact, it was that cold that it snowed and we had ice and there were uh, men from my regiment that actually died from exposure. Mm. And there was lots of other things that happened as well. We had the wrong intelligence, wrong weapons, uh, wrong ammunition, the wrong mapping. Um, our clothing that we had were from the Second World War. And yes, so there was a catalogue of events, but as the main thing that we found was that we were fighting the elements. We didn't have the cold weather equipment. It wasn't brought out with us from UK, just simply because we didn't think, or no one didn't think that in the desert that it was going to snow and or, or reach the uh, the coldest temperatures that they'd ever had on record. And, and guys simply died because the weather was too cold, Rob. Yeah. Yeah, a real challenge. I don't think a lot of people realized that at the start of the Gulf War, of that extreme cold. Now you had a, um, an, I loved a line in the book. Uh, you said, let's get this done and get home for tea and medals. And uh, I think that gives people an insight into the humor in your unit. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, we have a saying in the units and uh, as you know, British humor, we're a little bit strange, Rob, aren't we? You know, we have this, we call it banter, you know, and it, it's it's taking the mickey out of each other, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's lighthearted, but, uh, uh, and we have a saying which we said, let's get the job done, let's get back and let's get to your medals. And and this it's a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. And, and But what it is, the humor itself, uh, Rob, it releases tension. Um, and it's a way when there's a lot of banter, when there's a lot of Mickey checking, you know, um, that, you know, we, we're showing that, you know, we're a little bit scared, you know, we, we, we're not scared to show that, you know, and um, we feel tense and you can feel that the banter gets, it comes on more. 
and and it's a way of of controlling your fear and it's it's a way of letting everyone know that uh, you're actually feeling it a little bit you know and yeah. uh, um, so we're not scared to do that and in fact just a little bit further on that is that uh, in the book, there's a story that I, um, all soldiers wear, we call them dog tags, which are ID tags around our necks. And what it is, it has your name, it has your blood group on it, tells you what you're allergic to, et cetera, et cetera. So if you get injured, if you get shot, you know that, you know, if you're A positive, well, guess what? That's the blood transfusion you need. And I used to wear these dog tags around my neck, these ID discs. And whenever things got a little bit tense, when I knew that a situation was going to come up where I was feeling a little bit scared, I would grab these ID discs, these dog tags around my neck, and I would just focus myself, grab them. As you know, I tell the story in the book, and mm -hmm. I would just say, right, Des, let's get the job done, and let's get home, or let's get the job done, and let's get on for team medals. And in fact, even today, um, my girlfriend, my partner, she actually now has these ID discs and she sometimes oh. wears them. And, um, and we talk about it and we said, well, if these, we class it as a talisman, you know, we go, well, if these, this talisman, these ID discs, these dog tags have kept me safe all these years, well, my girlfriend says that it will keep us safe for the rest of the years to come. And she wears them from time to time, which I think is quite nice, isn't it? Um, it is nice. it, yeah. And instead of, instead of throwing them in a box and what have you. We're still using them today, and um, I like it that she wears them. And so, um, yes, answering your question, we use the banter to bring the tension down, to let everybody know that we're feeling it a little bit. And and I think humour as a way of getting you through certain situations. And yeah, uh, and and in UK, we are particularly good at the old humour, Robert. Well, you know. I, I, I've worked in London and England <laughs> many times. I love it. You know, yeah, I, I totally yeah. get it because yeah. I'm, I'm half English. My, I have my family from England, so yeah. yeah, so I get it. But that leads me into um, building upon that into my next question. You were training with the Delta Force one time, and they actually asked you about that ritual, or a soldier asked you about that, and he and uh, you explained to him that that was your ritual, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Building upon that, the SAS, what would you say is equivalent to the SAS in the American military? Would it be the Delta Force or the SEALs or what do you think? Um, I've worked with many special forces around the world and Rob, these is many good units. Um, we particularly work closely with the SEALs and with Delta. Um, there's a story in the book that um, uh, the SEALs where I went to a SEAL team because of what I explained earlier on, where we were short on ammunition, on weapons, on mapping, and what have you. And actually, the SEALs uh, arguably saved the day. They gave me food and equipment, and uh, they gave me a bit of a slagging at first, saying, what is it with your Brits? You come here with nothing at all, and then you come to us yanks asking for all the equipment. So they give me a bit of a telling off at first. But um, what is good is that um, they help me immensely, and uh, they're a very professional unit. And... Um, and yes, they are a particularly great unit, but I would say the equivalence of the SAS is, is Delta Force. Um, and, and in fact, Delta is based on the SAS itself. Um, mm. Back in, I believe in the middle 70s, 75, 76, uh, there was a Colonel, a Colonel Charlie Beckworth, who actually came 
and uh, served with the SAS for a few years. Uh, on returning to um, back to his unit, he written a paper saying that I think the uh, we should have the equivalent of uh, an SAS unit, and he explains the reasons why. Hence, uh, Delta was was formed. And we work very, very close with, with Delta, and they're a great bunch of guys, very, very professional. Um, so I would say that the, the top tier one guys around the world, you know, is, is, is those three, SES, Delta, and, and the SEALs. Um, and I've worked with all of them, and they, uh, they're all um, uh, Delta and the SEALs are very, very professional guys. And uh, offline, you mentioned that you trained in the States. Um, at Fort Bragg as well? Yes, um, I've worked uh, even when I was in the Paris uh, at Fort Bragg with the 82nd Airborne. And, and it, it's funny, that that mindset of the Paris, it's the same worldwide, you know. Um, but yes, I've also worked with Delta over in Bragg, uh, worked with the SEALs in in, uh, in, in Florida. And, um, and yes, it's not only is it particularly nice coming over to the States and uh, um, your guys tend to have better weather than we do, but you know, so um, I know we said offline that every time I've come over, your guys always look after us really well. You know, you're very hospitable. We've got some great training together. I mean, your guys have got some great facilities out there, you know, and, and, and uh, I mean, Fort Bragg, I mean, Wow, I mean, is is that a camp or is that a city? You know, I mean, that is <laughs> yeah. some place. You know, exactly. and but no, um, whenever I've come over and trained with your guys, whether it's with the Paris, the Second Airborne, whether it's Delta, whether it's with the Seals, um, I always particularly like coming over. We're always well looked after. We do some great training, and you've got some great facilities. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's always well received. We we really really enjoy coming and uh, training with your guys. That's great. That's great to hear. And you served, as you said, 28 years in the service, and you've retired now. What has your post-military career been like? How's the adjustment been? Yeah, I I think I've been very, very lucky. I think um, I think what I, a, a lot of our guys find probably the organization and the discipline once they leave the unit of, uh, they probably find that difficult. I know there's a lot nowadays, Rob, about uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of people ask me about this. I, I don't know enough about it, it, it Rob, but uh, I, for me, I, I, I think I'm okay. And, and that's not me being the big one and pushing my chest out. I have a good social network. And I think if if, if Des was um, doing anything a little bit strange, I think my friends would let me know. And I would do the same for them. Um, as far as coming out and, and going on to what we call is the circuit. So we leave the military and we go on to the circuit. And, and, and to give you some idea, my first job is that I went out to the Middle East and I worked uh, for ABC, NBC and CBS uh, oh, news. Really? And yes, and uh, war correspondents, if you like. So in the military, not only were we working in these volatile areas, but then obviously uh, news teams uh, go out there and actually want ex-military guys to give them security. So for a few years, I did that and I quite enjoyed it. Um, I also did the circuit, which is the VIP circuit, which would be the celebrities. So we're talking um, on uh, with films and with pop stars. So I've done security for, I'm name dropping now, Rob, okay, for uh, sure, Christ, Chris, Christine Aguilera and Ricky Martin. 
and um, and then Rob Stewart as well uh, on the films. I've done the Bond films with Ali Berry and Piers Brosnan. And then um, I've done some British footballers, you know, uh, Jamie Redknapp, Robbie Keane. Those are quite famous over here. Mm. And so it tends to be split with uh, war correspondents doing uh, security for those out in volatile areas and then working with uh, celebrities, VIPs. And, and you know, I, I, I like both. It was, it was both enjoyable. As far as the transition, I myself... Um, found no problems really. I think it was more that I kept the discipline and I mixed with like-minded people and Rob, I kept myself busy, if you like. And I think by keeping myself busy and uh, keeping me uh, off the street, so to speak, um, I felt I was doing um, what I'm designed to do, if you like, you know, Um, and and, and really enjoyed it. But um, Regarding the PTSD, Rob, what I do like nowadays, as I say, I don't know much about it. I've been asked to get involved in quite a few of these uh, things now, but there's some solid organizations out there now, and they're doing a sterling job. They're doing a really good job. So guys, there are suffering. There's places for them to go and, and things are getting done. As you can appreciate in the past, I think this PTSD was was probably it wasn't spoke about, wasn't recognized and was pushed under the table probably yeah. a, a little bit too much We now it's out in the open. Um, but answering your questions, my position is that uh, I did my 28 years. Um, I was never going to have a midlife crisis. I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd done everything. I'd done everything that I wanted to do. Um, got out, um, did, went onto the circuit, what I've explained, really enjoyed myself. And um, today I'm kind of now um, written my book and um, I class myself as an author now, you know, which is, uh, and, and you know something, Rob, it's, it's been far more enjoyable than I thought it would be, you know. Um, I think I think because military guys were a little bit wary when we talk about books and stuff like that. True. But the people that I've dealt with, the publishers and the agents and what have you, have been very, very good. And we're really pleased about the book, especially now it's become a, um, a number one bestseller. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Congratulations so we, on that. Yeah. yeah. So we are really, really pleased on that. So that's what I tend to be doing nowadays is dealing more in uh, about the book and what comes from the book, really. You know, I'm doing talks around the country and getting involved in certain things, positive things. And, um, and they're talking possibly about another book next year. So uh, we we Very are good. we are pleased with that, Rob. So there we go. Good. Well, I urge everyone to pick it up at your earliest convenience. The book is called SAS Bravo Three Zero: The Gripping True Story. And Des, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Rob, thank you very, very much. Uh, very much uh, appreciated, and please, uh, my very best regards to your listeners. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, former CIA counterterrorist chief of operations Rick Prado will be here to talk about his book, Block Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. You cannot run operations through an, a political optic. Uh, operations should be led and devised and approved by the people that know what the hell they're doing. That doesn't mean you don't do it with White House approval, but you cannot allow a political you know, optic to change that. Bayer Pigs is a perfect example of that and many, many others. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a rating, a review, or just click the follow button. 
You can find me on Twitter at Rob Child. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.